0: On today's episode, we're celebrating how one can make something exquisitely beautiful from the uglier things in life. My name's Allison Brown, and I'm gonna be your digital docent. Hello again. My apologies if I'm sounding a little rough around the edges today, by the way. Every podcaster's worst specter of a sore throat has shown up on my doorstep, so we'll be walking through the gallery with me holding a pretty piping hot honey and lemon close at hand today. Aren't you glad that I'm an electric friend today instead of a real one? Whew, and can you believe that it's December already? I know this little podcast is only four weeks old, but man is the time flying by this year. We're already a little under a quarter of the way through our first exhibition, and today's work is pretty exciting, at least I think, because we're finally branching out into contemporary art. Naturally, I'm going to be pretty excited about this, but I totally get it if you're not on the same page. After all, this is an art history podcast. Emphasis on the history. Now, roughly after Frida last week is when folks will sometimes go from Oh my god, I love art so much too. um, what's so great about this painting? I could have made this in my sleep with a toddler. Which, that kind of attitude is admittedly a little disheartening for little docents like me. Now, I really do believe that a lot of the reason why contemporary art can feel a little out of reach is pretty much precisely because we don't talk about that art in a way that's approachable to people anymore. So... I wanted to take today to change that up for you. And if you already love contemporary artists, such as the person that we're discussing today, well, then you're just in for a bit of a commissary treat with yours truly. So the big thrust of our first exhibition at the gallery has been talking about women identifying artists. Specifically, I wanted to look into a survey of 20 self-identifying women who worked or are working in the arts world and just dive in there. I also didn't want to go by era either, That just seems like the first thing that you tend to do with art history programs, and I'm here to shake it up a little bit. So the general idea was to cycle through choices from the past to the present on a rotation until we all get to the end, which is why you'll see us butting up Renaissance painters up against contemporary collage artists or sculptors. Now, the beautiful thing about art history, in my humble opinion, is that Art history is essentially the story of humanity in a picture book format, which is to say, regardless of the time period, art will always be a reflection of the life and times of the people who make it. Now, when Judith Leyster is painting the concert, for instance, that was a time when it was revolutionary for artists to be painting candid narratives in public instead of allegories about Christ, mythological scenes, or rarefied portraits of the gentry where everyone looks like they have a stick stuck up their ass. Meanwhile, Frida Kahlo is an exquisite example of when painters become the mirrors to the outside world, and in a very concrete way as well. Now, all of that prelude brings us to our piece today, Writing Death in My Sleep by Wengechi Mutu. Our piece today is 60 inches high by 44 inches wide. This would be otherwise measured as 152.4 centimeters by 111.8. That may actually make this our first portrait format work in the exhibition so far, otherwise known as a work that is taller than it is wide. That makes this collage pretty impressive in that context. Drawing generally as a discipline is often considered as a small format kind of medium, but this is anything but that. Now, the background's flat, a gray sky with slight blue overtones that match the navy blue mound that our figure is crouched upon. Upon these simple demarcations of space, crouches our figure. She's dressed sparingly in a leopard print bikini top and matching furry boots her leopard print cuffs complete the look. Her belly gently swells from behind her crouching thighs. And the majority of her skin is a model technicolor, yellows and oranges lurking beneath an overlay of navy blue spots. Now, truth be told, her skin kind of reminds me of petite cloth and how it softly bleeds into each other pattern-wise. There's even some paler spots overlaying the navy blue in some areas to grant texture isn't the word, I suppose. I think that depth is far better. Her face, however, is not nearly as modeled as her body. In fact, the exact opposite. It's porcelain pale and pretty bald. Her brows are slight, and her eyes are monolithed. Some folks, I suppose would call them slanted or almond shape, although I really don't like using that terminology. Either way, The gaze that they have is directed at the viewer, with her three-fourth portrait yet again making that look seem arresting, almost as if we startled her. Her nose is flat, with broad nostrils that are slightly overlapped by the collaged lips that are plastered on top. Those lips almost seem comically large compared to the rest of her face that's on the drawing. They're just slightly off kilter, just enough to betray that they have been pasted on, as well as just enough to dominate the woman's face in such a way as to act as one of her most singular features. Around the woman, small, strange animal figures crawl or fly around. There's a kitten-faced ground crawler with tiny human arms and butterfly wings attached to a carapace. On her shoulder, a beetle welded to some crustacean in a lizard's tail creeps towards her ear. Elephant-headed serpents fly overhead, and an eagle's head is only capable of walking around by its talons between the tufts of grass. Dispersed amongst these creatures are mounds of mushrooms and toadstools that litter the navy blue hill. Some have dull tan stems, while others are lilac, mustard, or rust red. All of them pop up against the mound and play against our figure's mottled flesh. Now, If you're just listening to me describing writing death in my sleep, this collage probably sounds pretty wild. Ugly, even if you're just taking those words entirely at face value. The genius of Wingage's work, however, is that the composition's soft, muted, sensual even, despite all of those descriptors. And all of this is entirely due to Wingage's execution of color theory and shapes in this work. I'm sure we've all seen that meme of an extremely round animal with the caption, this is shaped like a friend, for instance. Now, that's not by accident. Psychologically, we as humans are more likely to feel as if softer, more organic shapes are more approachable, even if those shapes are depicting something that's on the razor's edge between beautiful and unsettling. Everything in writing Death in My Sleep is playing that card. The animal hybrids are all crafted with gentle tendrils, and the horizon line is one smooth bend. Our color palette is primarily soft blues, contrasted with the occasional warm orange or yellow. Most folks will recognize orange and blue as the basic building blocks for a complementary color scheme, which anyone worth their salt in Color Theory 101 knows is pleasing to the eye due to how the colors interact and enhance each other when in close proximity. Think, for instance, about how you're attracted to photographs of the Grand Canyon. It's basically the same reason, my dude. And, of course, I do believe it would be remiss to not address that Wangichi also specifically made her female figure coded to be pretty sexy, splotchy skin aside. Her boots are knee-high, she's wearing a bikini top, and based off of that crouch, you can tell that she's athletic. Vital, even. And it's not a mistake that her lips are so large and pop from her face, either. It's unsettling to say that they're specifically chosen to evoke a sense of sensuality, but then again, that's the point. Why, though? When you read up about Gechi's work, words such as alien or the grotesque are often used to describe the figures and compositions that Wingage uses. Other words include buboes, tendrils, tentacles, and mutant appendices, and this isn't just in one review either. You can see it in write-ups about her work on major outlets such as Hyperallergic, in major international galleries such as Sachi and in museum descriptions of her collages as well. When you see this repeated in contemporary scholarly writings, you can often assume that the artists themselves use those words to describe it, and that's specifically when they're talking to the curator or their audience. And those words may otherwise be packaged up in their artist statement as well. So why are we seeing so much of that language used when so many of Wayne collages and drawings feature women just like our gal in the center of writing Death in My Sleep? It's because she's interested in exploring sexuality, post-colonial identity, and violence against women, and especially black women in our current landscape. It's perhaps a good time right now to interject that Wingachie is originally from Nairobi, Kenya, and she's been educated all over the world, first in Wales, then later in New York at the Cooper Union, and finally with her MFA at Yale in New Haven, Connecticut. Kenya was a former colony of Great Britain, and her high school career was sent in the home colonizing country before transferring over the states, from there, I don't believe it's any secret about how violence against black women, both literal and the cultural landscape, is so widespread in the States. These are all subjects that Wengeetchi would have had firsthand experience with, just by virtue of being someone from her background who lives in this world at large. Forming a visual language about the post colonial experience while working primarily in academia. Which, despite being pretty well aware of such a problem, can still manage to graduate it just by virtue of old-school mechanics, well, that's essentially the artistic version of method acting. And I'm saying this as someone who is a former academic, even though I'm a white cis female ally. There's no way I can match Wayne exact experience, far from it, in fact. From what I remember of grad school, I remember that wrestling with those kind of identity subjects is really hard, but once you find your language to talk about it, it's also extremely thrilling to make work after that. Although Wingage specifically comes from a background of sculpture, she's most often known for her collages, and that's for a pretty good reason. Now remember what I said about visual language? When it comes to contemporary art, a lot of folks have to extend that visual language to how they make their images as well. Sometimes people will choose to become printmakers or painters or sculptors because they love the medium. But other people choose mediums because it's no accident and it specifically pours into the ideas that they're interested in when they make art. Now, when it comes to collage, I wouldn't be surprised if this was the very same case for Wingichi, given the nature of how collage works. In this case, she's cutting up source material that directly perpetuates those concerns that she's digging through. She uses Natural Geographic, which has a history of a colonial eye. There's fashion magazines and their propensity for objectification. And then there's pornography, which is... pornography, guys. It's pornography. Now, from there, she'll pick and choose what's important to her to make a completely different image from those scraps, ending up building this new image that's sliced up from remnants of these other, more painful ones. Now, there's something, in my humble opinion, that's exquisitely amazing about making something that was previously hurtful and venomous to you into something beautiful. I mean, I know that I've done it in studio projects before, just to reclaim that thing that hurt me into something that's so delightful to look at that even the people that might have hurt me in that way have no other choice than to look at the work. Beauty's a currency in contemporary society, and although it's hard for me to say if this is why Wengichi does what she does, I do think this is the final effect that she's had with me with work like this. There are other works that illustrate this so wonderfully in her portfolio, including an entire exhibition that she had at the Satchi Gallery that I'll be including in the show notes. But when it comes to writing Death in My Sleep, I think the seduction of beauty and how poison can reflect that in nature is something that I'm really taking away here. Mushrooms and toad schools are often hand in hand here, and there are beautiful structures that could kill you if you're not careful about how you eat it, or which one you eat. And that woman's flesh, it's mottled and gorgeous, and it reminds me of a poison tree frog in the wilderness. If I were to touch her, would my hand fall off? Maybe, or maybe not. We don't know. But there's something about the weaponization of beauty and writing Death in My Sleep that intrigues me so much that it draws me to this collage again and again, and again. And I'm so thankful that it's the first contemporary work that we got to chat about here. Now that the holidays are coming up, I just wanted to let you darlings know about my intent of releasing my first extra episode a little closer to the end of the month. Now I'll be calling these extra episodes studio visits. And as the show grows and I'm able to go out into my favorite artistic communities, I'm really hoping that the content of these studio visits will grow. But for our first one, I'd just like to invite all of you over to send me as many questions as you can think of. A few folks have already dropped some my way via email, and I'm also gonna be boosting this request again in my Instagram stories. Just come on by either way you'd like, and just give me some of that good stuff before December 14th. I'll be cutting off submissions at midnight wherever you are in the world. And these questions can be about anything, by the way. Now, if there's a work of art you've always been curious about, even if I haven't talked about it before, an artist that you love that you would like for me to research to get you more information about, or heck, even if you just want to know how to make something, that's all fair game. Just give me a shout, and we'll cover it in that episode. On that note, studio visit questions or otherwise, please don't hesitate to give me a shout on any of our social media outlets. We're on Twitter, instagram and yes facebook at your digital docent with the your spelled as y r you can also send us an email at docent at gmail.com special thanks to dj quads for the usage of their song it just makes me happy check them out on soundcloud by searching for aka dj quads and of course big thanks go to our research sources this week which includes artsy the statue gallery in London. Artnet, and Wengechi's lovely website at wengechimutu.com. All of those will naturally be linked in the description. And also, if I could maybe ask you for a little early Christmas present of a review on whatever podcast aggregate of choice that you're using, I would really appreciate it. I mean, five stars naturally would be best, but if you could, you know, anything at all, that just gets us more eyes. And I would really love to share this around. On that note, from my gallery wall to yours, this has been your digital docent.